When are people going to see that nothing ain't never going to change unless somebody finally makes up his mind to stand up and fight? Damn. Netrich Radio presents Hopping Mad with Will McLeod and Arliss Bunny. Welcome to Hopping Mad. I'm Will McLeod. And I'm Arliss Bunny, and I have an exciting announcement. Will and I are going to be at Netroots Nation this summer in St. Louis. We'll be there on Radio Row with the guys from Netroots Radio and our fellow podcasters. We invite you to come on by, chat with us, sit with us, maybe even participate in an interview. While there, we'll be interviewing some of the incredible, interesting, and compelling people who gravitate to Netroots every year. It's going to be really exciting, and we're really looking forward to it. Will? Today on Hopping Mad, I'll be talking about direct democracy. And I'll be talking about why we don't need to save Social Security. And later on the show, we have an interview with Mark Potok of the Southern Poverty Law Center talking about conspiracy theories crossing into the mainstream of politics. But first, did you know that there's a very easy way for people who are facing voter suppression to opt out of the voter suppression? Request an absentee ballot. Some progressives over at Daily Coast have noted that if you request absentee ballots, you don't need a photo ID, just the last four digits of your social security number, and you'll be able to avoid all of those horrible long lines. People, if they request absentee ballots, will be able to make an end run around the voter suppression methods used by Republicans. Also, in at least North Carolina, registering an absentee ballot re-registers you in the proper precinct automatically. So if you are in a state that in November will have problems with voter suppression in your area and horrific long lines, you should look now into signing up for an absentee ballot. You should also spread the word in other states with Republican governments that are trying to suppress the vote to see if that's not an option for people in your area as well. I will be looking into this and giving updates on the story as time goes by, but that all comes in the future. Coming up, I'll be talking about direct democracy here on Hopping Mad. Welcome back to Hopping Mad. Direct democracy. What is it? Well, we have a lot of theories about democracy and, and how we allow the people to choose their government and consent to government and supervise and control their government. And with the advent of the internet, there's been a lot of attention paid towards modifying our government further for actual direct democracy, which would mean for the decisions the government makes, it is not legislators or representatives that vote on things, but the citizenry themselves, sort of a constant plebiscite or referendum system. This has been advocated by a lot of people from all over the spectrum, from libertarians to anarchists and every kind of group in between have talked about direct democracy. And it's something that we tried to do at Occupy Wall Street. And I want to tell that story briefly. When we were just starting Occupy Wall Street, and I wandered down there on the third day to see what was going on. And after talking with people, decided to stay and, and support it. We had what was called the New York City General Assembly, which was a group of people who sat around and voted on policies. And anyone who wanted to participate could vote. And this worked very well for a time. But after a certain point, we couldn't have a space 
that was large enough for everyone to get together and vote. So in a decision that was really, really controversial, the General Assembly decided to move towards what was called the Spokes Council system, where you would have the, the creation of multiple working groups. And then a couple of hundred people would meet in each working group to go over a specific topic, and they would elect a representative to the Spokes Council, who would then explain what the working group had come to decide. And then there are various other processes, but we'd essentially moved from direct democracy to representative democracy, because direct democracy in a park was pretty unwieldy. And it was really interesting for me to see that development. And after that experience, I've been thinking a lot about how we do direct democracy and, and what our views are on direct democracy. So I looked at states that use referendum systems. And there are about 10 states that do have referendum or ballot initiative systems. But two I'm going to talk about today, just so we can see both the pros and the cons, are California and Florida, where I grew up. Now, Florida doesn't have the same kind of proposition system that California has. California has a proposition system where the citizens propose a new law and any California citizen can write the law and, and, and create a petition, have people sign it and put a proposition onto the ballot, assuming they get enough signatures. The same thing works in Florida, except for us, it's amendments to the Florida Constitution. So we have had everything in our constitution from parental notification of a pregnancy termination, which is horrible, to mandating the state to build a bullet train. Um, now, this has been a much bigger problem for California in some ways than it has been for Florida because Florida has a long and tried and true tradition of completely ignoring all of our laws and just going forward with whatever the hell we want to do anyway. That's Florida. That's how we do. So in Florida, they completely ignored the bullet train system and refused federal money for it and then killed it in a ballot initiative. And what needs to be understood about the problems when it comes to these sorts of initiatives is the way that people operate around them. Often you have all of the dark arts of politics being brought into a direct democracy system. The, the campaigns aren't even official political campaigns. So in a lot of cases... The campaign financing laws don't necessarily apply because they're operating as some other group and that group just happens to support this other group, which the dark money moves around in a way that's really scary. In addition to that, you have problems with wording. And I was actually taken in by this myself, where I wanted to vote in favor in 2004 of keeping our bullet train. But when I voted yes... I voted to repeal the bullet train amendment. Exactly. And in California, which is where I'm from, there was just a few years ago, there was Proposition 8. And it was written in such a way that if you voted yes on Proposition 8, you were voting to oppose LGBTQ marriage. And if you voted no on Proposition 8, you were voting in favor of LGBTQ marriage. And so... Getting that word out that you had to vote no in order to support something, in other words, they had reversed the language, was extremely difficult. And Prop 8 originally lost. in a, Well, it passed, which means we lost, and had to go all the way through the court system and was finally defeated in the Supreme Court. But 
the reality is that it was written the way it was written on purpose. The, the people who wrote Prop 8 did that in order to take advantage of, of people not understanding the way the proposition was written. Now, the other side of that is something like Proposition 13, which passed when I was young. And Prop 13 was a tax initiative. And they cut property taxes at that point down to 1% for both homes and commercial property and limited the growth rate of future assessments to 2%. And basically what that did was gut the California budget in a big and serious way. And California education went down the drain for a long, long time, all the way up until Jerry Brown was elected the second time, elected governor the second time, and until Democrats had a supermajority in both houses of the legislature. It, so 30 years, 35 years of living under Proposition 13 nearly destroyed California. And the yeah. problem up front was it's an extremely dense and complex issue and very, very difficult to explain why you do need higher property taxes to people, whereas cutting property taxes sounds great. So those kinds of things, to put those up to a plebiscite, it's dangerous. Right. And that's the limit of direct democracy. And that's the, that's the issue. If you look at what happens in Florida and with these ballot initiatives, a lot of times they're not even used to achieve what's in the initiative. They're used as a way to drum up votes to get people out to the polls to vote for whichever candidate is saying they support that. So that candidate gets into office and becomes someone in power. And if you look at the history of these things with wording, I want to explain to our Scottish listeners as well, these ballot initiatives are never worded clearly. It's not something like the Scottish independence referendum where it's, do you think that Scotland should be an independent country or should Scotland be an independent country? It's not something that's a simple question like that. Should the state end discrimination against LGBT people? That would have been a perfect question to ask in a plebiscite with then, you know, the, the, the other supporting stuff. But they don't ever want it to be simple because, again, the dark arts of politics are involved. And you look at what happened in California where they actually are forced to listen to these propositions and the, the tax code is forced to reflect these things as opposed to what happens in Florida where the state just ignores anything they don't want to listen to because it's Florida. And – California is in a really messed up situation. Florida, too, is messed up budgetarily because they are actually listening to the homestead exemption tax code where – and this is ridiculous in Florida. If you have a house and you don't want to pay ta property taxes, you can get a homestead exemption. How do you get a homestead exemption? Build an addition onto your house. That's it. Just like build a garage. Or if you have a garage, convert your garage into something that we call a Florida room which is a garage that's now a living room and it has insulation and insulated walls and stuff like that. That gets you a homestead exemption, which means that you no longer have to pay any property taxes. And these sorts of loopholes are, are the way that direct democracy is, is misused in a damaging way. I think every one of our listeners would agree that tax codes are complicated. Government is complicated. The decisions that we have to make about our country are complicated. And so what we need for these things to work is either people whose job it is to figure out the complicated stuff and then make the kinds of right decisions that we believe in because they're on our side and they've explained their ideological positions to us and we understand what they're going to do once they get in office. Or we need a population that is educated enough to be able to understand the ins and outs of every single complicated policy or position or question that there is. And unlike a lot of cynics who think, well, you know, we've been fighting in the Iraq war for 
or in the Middle East for more longer than I've been alive, basically. The, the first conflicts in Afghanistan happened before I was born. Uh, we've been fighting in that band from Afghanistan to Iraq forever. And yet still most Americans don't know what Sykes-Picot is. They don't understand the history of that region. I think that that's because the media has been failing us. I think that's because our schools have been failing us. I think that's because, as we'll talk about in the interview, we don't have critical thinking education in the United States. And I think, I really do believe, because I believe in democracy, that people can be educated on these topics, that the American people can know in an intellectual way what's going on in the world and what decisions ought to be made. But in order to get there, we have to eliminate the ability for people to use the dark arts of politics in direct democracy. We have to get away from part of what we're going to be talking about in the next section, which is the politics of fear. And we have to get to a place where people can actually understand all of the nuances of the decisions that we're making. I think we can get there. But before we move to the kind of direct democracy situation where Americans are making all of those decisions, we have to move to a place where people will always have the good information that they need to make the right decision. Human beings have a wonderful capability to intuit things, to understand things. But we work just like computers do in some ways, which means garbage in, garbage out. If we have bad information... We're going to make bad decisions. Well, but I think it's, I do actually think it's more than that. I, I think that not all of us want to make all those decisions. In other words, I hire somebody in my company to handle the shipping and receiving. I pay almost no attention to it. That's because I'm trust, I've hired them and I'm trusting them to do that job. I check in on them. I make sure it's getting done properly. This person gets reviewed on a regular basis, etc. But the the fact of the matter is I have other things to be doing with my brain in any given day. I don't want to worry about shipping and receiving. I feel that way about my representatives in Washington, D.C. and in Indianapolis. I want to be able to hire people that I can trust to make a lot of those decisions for me. But therein yeah. lies the rub. And I think that is the rub because I... And that's the big challenge to my position that's difficult because I, I do agree that people are going to have a problem reading 40-page policy briefs, that they're going to have a problem digging through mountains of statistical data, that they're going to have a problem with all of those ins and outs of actually running uh, a political and economic system to the size of the ones in the United States. But my hope is that the people we'll be hiring to deal with that information are both the politicians whose job it is to know and the media whose job it is to keep an eye on those situations. And if both of those conditions are set, then more direct democracy is possible. And even, even ultimately, when it comes to really, really important decisions, the citizenry would be able to demand a vote on certain things themselves, would be able to trigger some kind of, of plebiscite on a, on a national level. I, I think direct democracy means that people are able to participate in their government on that level. And I think that's a good thing. But I think you're also right that we need to have people in positions that we trust that are able to make decisions on our behalf when we just can't be bothered to do the research. Because another aspect of this is we do bad research. If you're not educated to do research, you are going to come up with terrible information. Well, and who's I, got I've the seen... time? I mean, seriously, who's yeah. got the time? I mean, let's be real. We've all got enough to do, you know, enough to do in any given day as it is. Yeah, I don't think we can all sit around being uh, 
frictionless spheres of of complete uh, public citizenry. We have jobs to do and lives to live. That's also true. So I think that's that's a part of it as well. But at the end of the day, if we do want more direct democracy, probably not total direct democracy like some folks want, but if we want more direct democracy, we also need to have a more informed citizenry. And even if we don't get direct democracy, that will be better for our country as a whole anyway. So that's the direction that we ought to move when we're talking about things like direct democracy. Coming up, Arliss is going to be talking to us about why Social Security is totally doomed. Just kidding, why it's totally fine. We're back on Hopping Mad, and today I'm talking about saving Social Security, or more accurately, why Social Security doesn't actually need to be saved. So let's talk about some myths right here at the top. People say the following things. Social Security won't be there when I retire. Because people are living longer, Social Security is even more at risk. There aren't enough people in the current and immediate future workforce to support the boomers as they age. Social Security is going broke. The money I get from Social Security is my money. Every single one of those statements is wrong. Not just a little bit wrong, but completely, totally, absolutely, fully wrong from top to bottom. Factually, completely, provably wrong. I know, I know, I know. You've heard them over and over again. It's hard to believe, but I'm telling you, they're wrong. So let's talk about a little history, and then we'll talk about why they're wrong. FDR created Social Security, and really what Social Security does is use this bizarre kind of nonsensical accounting practice to provide political cover because FDR could see down the road. And not only did he think he was going to have trouble politically in his time protecting Social Security, but he thought presidents and administrations in the future would have a great deal of trouble, that people would have trouble protecting Social Security. His reasoning was that if people thought of Social Security in terms of it being their own money, that they would fight harder to keep it protected. So he promulgated this myth that you are getting your own money back as part of promoting Social Security. So it's been there from the very, very beginning. And his other goal at that time was to cast it as personal money so that it wouldn't be seen as welfare money because that tag even then was problematic. So conservatives have always been out to get the poors, so to speak, and he didn't want to give them any more ammo than he had to. Social Security is a government entitlement program which is perceived as being funded by a dedicated tax stream. And let me say again, it is perceived as being funded by a dedicated tax stream. It is not in reality, but that's how we all think of it. That's how we've been taught to think of it. That's what Roosevelt was trying to put in place. We think of Social Security as being on the brink, but in 1983, Social Security was projected to be three, count them, three months from what's called insolvency. And we use that word, we toss that word around, insolvency, and in our minds, we confuse that with the word bankruptcy. They mean two different things. So if Social Security today was to become technically insolvent, 
in the way that we think about it now, which is wrong, but you know, let's just go with it for a minute, even if it was to become quote unquote insolvent. That means that Social Security would still be able to fund everybody that needs to be funded at 78% of current payments, or in fact, as it goes into the future, because the payment structure is projected to increase substantially, it would be 78% of that substantially increased payment structure. Because money comes into Social Security all the time. It can't go bankrupt. It gets money every quarter from the FICA insurance that's paid out of your paycheck and out of employers' matching contributions. So even with the incorrect way that people look at and people have been trained to look at Social Security, it's not going bankrupt. There will not be a point in time at which there is no money in Social Security unless there are no goods being produced in the U.S. and nobody's working. And frankly, if that's the case, we have much bigger problems. The real thing about Social Security is that people are growing increasingly worried. Politicians in the financial industry, they want you to worry. They have an investment in you worrying. The GOP wants to scare you. The Democrats want to save you and use that as a campaign promise. Wall Street wants to invest your Social Security money for you because they're so good at it. And there is no natural national leadership for telling the truth about Social Security. It eliminates the ability of politicians to influence the public with manipulation. They love having something that they can use to scare up votes to bring people to the polls for their side. And exactly. We need to adjust our thinking so that we're not so susceptible to being scared so easily. Exactly. And, you know, people are more susceptible now. Wages have fallen. Savings rates have fallen. Market bubbles have burst and dramatically cut retirement savings for a lot of people. So people are feeling justifiably nervous, but that's only applicable if Social Security actually worked the way we think it works. And of course it doesn't, and I'm getting to that, but let's just keep that in the back of our minds. The Congressional Budget Office, who basically can't estimate or project their way out of a paper bag. Even a year into the future, they're the ones responsible for the very flexible math being used to project the Social Security shortfall. So even if you were to grant all of the other myths about Social Security as being true, they're all still based on projections which are in no way reliable. So you can breathe a little bit easier there too. And because we in MMT, in modern monetary theory, know that this is a spreadsheet and appearance problem and not a funding problem, we can look at this differently. We know that a government with a, a particularly the U.S. government, with a sovereign fiat floating currency whereby all their debt is in the currency that they issue, all of our debt is in our currency, we can never be put in a position of not being able to pay a bill we want to pay. Social Security, we can always make that payment. And if we don't, it's because Congress has decided not to, for no other reason than because Congress has decided not to. Social Security, by the way, is economically extremely efficient. Every dollar that the government spends on Social Security generates, at a minimum, $1.50 to $1.80 of economic activity. You can compare that to something like defense spending, which generates, for every dollar spent, about 80 cents of economic activity. And that's because the rest of that money, the other 20 cents, goes to sit out of the economy in corporate bank accounts. So today, 
the way you think it works, the way we're told it works, is that you pay 6.2% out of every paycheck into FICA, your employer matches that amount all the way up to what's called the cap. And the cap is $118,500. Once you have earned that amount of money, then FICA stops coming out of your paycheck and your employer stops matching it. And something I learned today, if you have two jobs, employers keep pulling as if they are the only one. And you have no way to get back that overage as a payment. So in this economy where lots of people have two and sometimes three jobs, there's again a place where the poors get hit. Anyway, raising the cap, which is often promoted as a solution, is an unnecessary action to take. And it increases the pushback. It increases the headwinds of actually solving the problem. So let's look at this another way. Imagine you're playing the Social Security video game. Level one is the FDR level. This is where you're supposed to believe that your money is sitting there waiting for you in the Social Security Trust Fund pot of gold. You spend your entire working life paying into the pot, and when you retire, you get your money back. You fend off recessions, depressions, congressmen, and bankers, all with the goal of protecting your pot of gold. That's how FDR wanted you to think of it, but once you see through level one, you get to go to level two. Level two is the banker's level. On this level, you are meant to understand that the money you are paying is not sufficient and will not be there when you need it. You are meant to be worried. Did I mention that there's no light on this level and that every 10 seconds someone from Fix the Debt or the Can Kicks Back scream at you that you're not being responsible? This level is all about your lack of moral rectitude. The bankers on this level are trying to get your money because privatizing Social Security will net them at least $27 billion per year in fees. Good for them, bad for you. You level up when you realize that it's a con game, a real one. Now you're on level three. Everything's a bit of a mess. It's a giant maze. To make your way through it, you have to see Social Security the same way government accountants and the Social Security Trust Fund trustees see it. Your money gets paid in, and they think they are taking the same money and paying it back out again, either to a current retiree or toward purchasing U.S. Treasury bonds. Right now, they have about $2.8 trillion in Treasuries set aside. The goal of the trustees is to have a one-year cushion in funds. They currently have a four-year cushion. They planned it that way because they knew the boomer generation was unusually large. It was part of their plan that the account balance fall and return to a resting state of a one-year cushion. Politicians may feign surprise, and you may actually be surprised, but the trustees aren't. But what about that argument we always hear that, well, but compound interest, if we just left the money alone and it got compound interest, it would be worth trillions, etc. Aha! <laughs> that brings me right to the giant trap door on level three, Will. And it's easy for someone to fall right through. When you pay your FICA tax and it goes to the Federal Reserve, you and basically everyone else you know, as well as almost everyone in government, imagines that the money you sent into the Fed is there at the Fed, but it's not. Right. Right. When your FICA taxes cross the threshold and arrive at the Fed, your taxes zero out an IOU, a liability, that the Fed was already holding on to. That IOU plus your taxes equals zero. Always. Every time. There's no other way for it to work because every single dollar circulating was originally generated by the federal government. And when each dollar was sent out, there was a placeholder, a liability, 
placed on the books at the Federal Reserve, waiting for that dollar to return and to make it go away, to zero out. None of the taxes you pay, including FICA, actually pay for anything, because the minute the money gets to the Fed, it disappears. The amazing and powerful thing about Level 3 is that just as there's a trapdoor down, there's a ladder up as well. Because at some point, you have to be asking yourself, where does the money come from that gets paid out to current retirees? Answer. At the Federal Reserve, a computer makes pixels appear. Those pixels get transmitted to banks of the retirees, either electronically or in a hard copy check. And the minute someone hits send at the Fed, magic happens by fiat. First of all, the Fed makes a note that it has again sent some money out into the economy, so it puts a new liability, an IOU, on the books again. Next, the minute those pixels cross the line from being on the screen at the Fed to being on the screen at a private sector bank, those pixels become currency. They become useful and have the ability to circulate in the economy. I know. This is the task on this level which is the most difficult to defeat. You have to wrap your mind around the fact, the absolutely simple, observationally true fact, that while pixels are on the Fed screen, they are nothing more than pixels. They have no value. None. They are smoke and mirrors. But the minute those same pixels cross into the private sector, they do the work of currency. They have value and they become extremely important. There you are. In level three, climbing up the ladder, through the ceiling, and into level four, because you've just realized that the U.S. government can always make all of its Social Security payment commitments, because the U.S. government possesses infinite pixels. Now you're on level four. This is the politics of Social Security, and frankly, unless you can slip past the demon Congress, this is the level where you will die, and with your dying breath, you will finally see that the problem with Social Security is not what we can or cannot afford. The problem is with the politicians. You are, however, not without one thin thread of hope. You must get an imbued object, a briefing packet, to the President of the United States. This packet contains the plans for defeating the Demon Congress while simultaneously accomplishing all of the President's economic goals, including what will be seen as saving Social Security, as well as paying off a substantial portion of U.S. debt and still leaving a healthy balance of pixels glowing on the computer screens at the Federal Reserve and Department of Treasury. Your role is to do everything in your power to protect the briefing packet from Congress while still spreading the word about the President's ability to use this plan to change, well, you know, almost everything. Due to a law which is no more or less legal, enforceable, or arcane than any other part of the way the U.S. operates its accounting systems, the President of the United States has the sole power to order the minting of a one-ounce platinum coin, or platinum coins. Yes, by the way, the law is exactly that specific, one-ounce platinum coins. The president also has the ability to specify the face value of said coins. It costs the U.S. men about $3,500 to make one of these coins. The briefing packet would instruct the president to have two coins made with a face value of at least $60 trillion. Suddenly, you have two $60 trillion coins minted and boom, in a good way. Seniorage is the difference between what it costs to make a piece of currency and the face value of the currency. After the Mint makes these two coins, they would subtract 
$7,000 from the account of the U.S. Treasury and place the balance, that $120 trillion worth of coins, one of them at the Fed, one of them with the Department of Treasury. One of them has to be retained by Treasury for, again, some really odd, arcane accounting reasons, and frankly, you can forget about that coin. It won't function in this accounting system. The other thing to know is that neither of these coins ever circulate. Ever. Never. Ever. But here's what just happened. The U.S. Treasury just received nearly $60 trillion. Experienced players of this game know to search for the Easter egg, which is hidden on this level and for which they receive extra points. Experienced players know that, one, just because the coin is now at the Fed doesn't mean it immediately gets spent. Pushing its value out as purchases by or payments from the U.S. government remains in the hands of Congress, where it has always been. Two, inflation is not a factor as long as unemployment or underemployment, as well as industrial capacity and resource capacity still exist. Three, the U.S. would now have the flexibility to make any and all payments it desires to make, including the elimination of the debt and all payments to entitlement programs, including Social Security. And four, of course, the U.S. always had the capacity to do that since it dropped off the gold standard, but convincing one president of that is easier than convincing the House and the Senate. And this is why platinum coin seniorage is imbued with political magic. Wait, what's that I see there? Could it be another level? Why, yes. Yes, it is, because everything we've just talked about is a financialized way of looking at Social Security, and there's an actual, real world outside the game. So here's what's real, and here's what Social Security really, really is. And when I say Social Security can't go bankrupt, and everybody's saying, um, why? Let's put everything aside, everything I've just said aside, and talk about the real economy. Not this financialized economy, not glowing pixels on a screen, but the real economy. That is the goods and services produced today and the limitations placed on them by the resources we have available and industrial capacity. You can't hoard doctor's appointments. You can't hoard prescription drugs or cilantro for 30 years. People working today generate all of the goods and services being purchased today, and with few exceptions, those goods and services can't be hoarded. Almost all the goods and services produced now are consumed now. Most of these goods and services are consumed by those who are working, but some are consumed by those who have retired. This means that in the real economy, those who are currently employed are sharing goods and services with those who have retired. In the real economy, then... The purpose of Social Security payments, the purpose of your FICA payment, is to reduce the amount of money via taxation which current workers have to spend in the economy. So the only job FICA is doing is regulating demand in an economy that does not need demand regulated right now. There are millions of Americans who are unemployed or underemployed. There's tremendous industrial capacity, and we have a tremendous ongoing access to resources. We do not need to be regulating demand. We don't need FICA taxes at all. And we could still fully fund Social Security. So, if it's not needed, if FICA taxes aren't needed, we don't need to lift the cap. We need to kill off FICA. And perhaps we keep it in reserve for a time when perhaps the economy does need to be regulated, but I doubt it. Because really, when you think about it, supply and demand is, we think about it in terms of being a national structure. In other words, we can top out our national ability to produce. 
But remember that we're now in a world economy. You'd have to be going some to top out the entire world's ability to produce. Against that, driving inflation would be pretty hard. We can eliminate, we can fully eliminate FICA taxes and still fully fund Social Security. But here's the real problem. It's political because, again, it serves Paul Ryan. It serves Pete Peterson. And to some perspective, it serves Democrats. If we are in a position where we get to talk about the budget, then we can defund things we don't like. We can take money from places we don't want it. We can use that as as a handy excuse to keep us from doing the things that we promise to do that we don't really want to do. Because you see our politicians do that all the time. Well, they'll make promises and say, well, we couldn't do X or Y. So long as we exist in this framework of we can't pay for this, we'd love to, but we just can't do it, then we avoid having to take the full responsibility for failing to get things done, even when we control Congress. It's not just the Republicans here. Everybody benefits from the nonsense that we preach about fiscal responsibility. That's right. And there's a great comment that was made by Dan Kervik on the New Economic Perspectives website back on August 23rd of 2012 in a discussion thread. And he said, current retirees are not being paid back by mortal individuals who owe them an individual debt, but by the nation, which abides beyond the lives of individuals that comprise it and which owes them a social debt. This is a moral responsibility, a commitment we have made, a promise we have made. So the real question is, how do we get this job done? Well, I can hear the cringing now, but the answer, really, the answer to this is platinum coin seniorage. The answer is to mint the coin. And it isn't because minting the coin is any more or less gimmicky than 50 other ways to do this. The difference is that the president can do it alone. And I know that mentioning the coin sounds scary to people and odd to people and unusual to people. And it's basically messaging magic. I get that. But it's necessary because politics prevent other humane or moral solutions as it stands right now. Politicians right now, just as you said earlier, politicians are using the bankruptcy meme to block legislation they don't like for other usually unstated reasons. Real fiscal responsibility including the welfare of citizens, the planet, the real health of our economy, would be at the center of our national focus. Next up on Hopping Mad, we have an interview with Mark Potok from the Southern Poverty Law Center. We'll teach you how to spot them in the cities or the sticks. Or even Jasper Junction is just full of Bolsheviks. The CIA subversive. And so is the FCC. There's no one left but thee and we. And we're not sure of thee. Oh, we're the John Birch Society. The John Birch Society. Here to save our country from a communistic one. Join the John Birch Society. Holding off the Reds. We'll use our hands and hearts. And if we must, we'll use our heads. We're back on Hopping Mad. Today we have with us Mark Potok. He is a senior fellow at the Southern Poverty Law Center and is the editor for their award-winning quarterly journal, Intelligence Report. He's one of the leading experts in the nation on extremism, and Mark is quoted regularly by both domestic and foreign journalists, has testified before the U.S. Senate and the U.N. High Commission on Human Rights. 
He's been with the Southern Poverty Law Center since 1997, but prior to that, he won awards as a journalist for several major newspapers, including the Dallas Morning News, the Miami Herald, and while he was with USA Today, Mark covered both the 1993 Waco siege and then in 1995, the Oklahoma City bombing and later the trial of Timothy McVeigh. Welcome, Mark. Well, thanks so much for having me. So my first question is, it's very clear from your background that you realized that extremism was going to become kind of its own category, its own specialty in news coverage. You were ahead of the curve. How did you see that coming? Well, a part of it was uh, uh, just personal interest, and a part of it was where I happened to be as a reporter. When I took a job at USA Today in 1993, I was based in Texas, and as it happened, I started a week before the Waco siege began. (laughs) Uh, Waco is really what led more or less directly to the militia movement, which in turn led to the Oklahoma City bombing and all that we've seen since then. So I was very much in the thick of uh, things. For a couple of years, I was running around the country talking to militia people and that sort of thing. And that's what led me to uh, all the interest I have in this area and eventually landed me at the Southern Poverty Law Center. So... I've been reading Intelligence Report for years and years, and I was really struck, and we're sticking pretty closely today in this interview, to an article that was in the winter issue of Intelligence Report. It's called Margins to the Mainstream, Radical Right Conspiracy Theories Have Invaded American Politics. You wrote this with Don Terry. It really took my breath away because, first of all, several of these conspiracy theories I didn't even know were out there. But secondly, I didn't realize that they were as, that the memes were as powerful as they are, that they had the kind of strength that they did. Has, has the SPLC looked at all into the psychological makeup of why people seem so easily taken in by conspiracy theories, why people want to hold on to and embellish fear? What works about that for people? Well, one of the things we point out in the story is that Americans have long had this peculiar penchant for conspiracy theorizing. You know, certainly there's a radical right just as vigorous as our own in Europe, for instance, but they are not nearly so much given to these ideas about, you know, secret agents and groups working beneath the surface uh, to do all the rest of us in. Uh, You know, I, I think to try and answer the question simply, though, I would say, Conspiracy theories are a way of making a very complex world simple. They are a way for simple minds to deal with realities that are oftentimes uh, very, very complicated. So I'm sitting here in the Midwest, and there's absolutely this widely held anti-intellectualism, anti-science belief system throughout this area, which is used by politicians, the media, religious leaders, all kinds of folks for their various aims. The Evolution Museum is very, very close to where I am. How did we get here? How how did people decide that simple, you know, that simple was the way and that education and science and all of these other things were threatening? Well, I mean, there there are probably several things going on. One of them, it seems pretty obvious, is that there has been a long-running backlash, 30-plus years, against the advance of science. I mean, we've seen not only in Christianity and not only in the United States, but in many very large faiths, a real resurgence of fundamentalism. And fundamentalism is is essentially anti-science by nature. So, you know, I think these are people who in some ways look back uh, upon the good old days and imagine in those days at least to have been a simpler and more wonderful time, a time when people all shared the same values when we weren't so polarized and so on. 
So I think that that is a very big piece of of what's happened. When we look at the way these memes are spread, the right-wing hate memes, and we look at the way that things are being organized, a lot of it seems to have become social media oriented. And that's when I, you know, looking at social media, I've been inundated myself with those far-right memes. It's kind of hard to escape them in certain spaces. You see these ideas that interracial marriage or immigration is a secret plot by some mysterious other that's ill-defined to somehow wipe out all white people. How, how are these memes being spread? Uh, who's behind them and, and how well are they working to inspire extremist, proto-fascist or racist ideas in, in well, the American psyche, especially in young Americans? Well, I think they're working very, very well. You know, perhaps one good example of that is, I'm not sure this is precisely a meme, but if we think back to the uh, massacre carried out by Dylan Roof in Charleston, South Carolina last June, the remarkable thing about that case is that this is a guy, a young guy, he was 21 at the time, who decided he was ready to murder nine people in a church simply because of what he read on a particular website, the website of the Council of Conservative Citizens, it's a white supremacist group. So the point I'm trying to make is that increasingly, especially especially young people, are getting their news in entirely different ways than we all used to in the past. You know, I would say that virtually almost, you know, any belief, any wild-eyed belief you might have about the world today, you can go on the Internet and find a quote-unquote news source that will tell you you are absolutely right. So, you know, do you think that the Federal Emergency Management Agency is secretly running a string of concentration camps in the United States? Well, there were plenty of, as I say, news sites that will tell you, yes, that's absolutely so. There are 400 of them, or there are 600 of them, or there are 800 of them. And uh, I think that's, it's very much, uh, at least in part, a function of the news environment, the idea that people get their news from very different places. You know, I would not sing the praises of the news industry in the 60s as some wonderful thing, but if you think back to that time, at least back then, while we uh, certainly had major political arguments in this country, say, over desegregation of schools, and people had very different opinions, still, people on most sides of that question were essentially operating on the same set of facts. In other words, they were reading more or less the same stories in the newspapers, seeing the same reports on national television, and so on. Today, that's entirely not true. You know, Dylan Roof felt that he had discovered the truth, which is, as you suggest, that white people were being wiped out by people of color in this country. That, as Dylan Roof said right before he began shooting, you know, you're raping our women and taking over, and so I have to do this. You know, Roof is a guy who got absolutely no contradicting information to this claim, which was made by this white supremacist group. So I think that's a big piece of it. Uh, you know, this idea of white genocide, that really is a meme, and that has been, to try and answer your question a little further, that's been pushed out very consciously by white supremacist organizers. So these are not just popping up randomly uh, among particular parts of the population. These are actually pushed out there with the idea that they'll be effective in bringing more people into the movement. Is the pinnacle of that thinking Donald Trump? Well, I'm not sure the pinnacle of that thinking. I think that maybe the pinnacle of that thinking is someone like Alex Jones, who is presumably you know, the, the, well, probably right. the most prolific conspiracy theorist in America. But, you know, yes, Trump represents, uh, in a sense, the kind of end point or getting near the end point of what happens when all of these ideas push their way into the mainstream. 
But I've got to say, and this was one of the big points of the article that Don and I wrote, that it's not only Trump, that there are enormous numbers uh, of quote-unquote mainstream people, politicians and pundits and preachers and others in the public eye, who are enablers, who are bringing these ideas into the mainstream, either because they are simply stupid or because they are outrageously pandering to the right-wing elements in their base. Uh, you know, last year, there, one of the conspiracy theories we discuss is this idea that martial law is about to be imposed on the country at any moment. And this has been a central idea of the militia movement going back to the early 1990s. Last year, there was a, a military exercise held in the southwestern states called Jade Helm 15. And the, this quickly raced around the Internet as this was the prelude to martial law. The government was about to uh, post martial law and throw anyone who resisted into concentration camps and so on. Well, you know, it might not amount to all that much in our political life had not then Texas Governor Greg Abbott, apparently taking this whole thing seriously, instructed the Texas National Guard to keep an eye on the military for uh, attempts to overthrow the Constitution and so on. So, you know, whether Abbott, as uh, one of the, his uh, fellow legislators down there in Texas said, is uh, simply a fool or willing to uh, pander outrageously, it re doesn't really make much difference. The point is, is that he legitimizes these ideas in the minds of hundreds of thousands, if not millions of people. One of the things your article talks about is that when it comes to martial law, there are concerns about that on both the left and the right. And I admit, I have some concern that basically Cleveland is going to be the next stop for temporary martial law. If it happens, I think it'll have to do with rioting and, you know, the, what it takes to keep Cleveland in one piece if it was to come to that. But so my question is actually a structural question. Not my question is not anything about Cleveland, but my question is, how do we as individuals, how do we decide the difference or where's the line between healthy attention and conspiracy theory? And how do we keep ourselves out of just, you know, sort of accidentally tripping over the line into conspiracy theory? Well, I mean, critical thinking. Uh, there's not much more to say than that. I mean, you've got to use your head. You know, if uh, some guy like Alex Jones says that there are a string of hundreds of concentration camps in the country and then shows you a couple of blurry black and white photographs that are supposed to prove it, I would say look for more proof before <laughs> you accept these ideas, and that's putting it mildly. I mean, sometimes it's hard not to think that people have simply lost all kinds of common sense. But I, again, I think the Internet and social media is a part of that. People seem to be ready to believe just about anything out there. But, you know, so I think the real answer is, I mean, you're right about the idea of martial law being imposed. And we tried to write that particular entry carefully because, in fact, there is some real predicate. You know, during the Reagan administration, there were, in fact, plans drawn up by uh, Oliver North and the then head of the uh, FEMA, Federal Emergency Management Agency, a guy named Louis Gafrida, to suspend the Constitution in the event of certain kinds of disturbances, civil disturbances, and so on. So it's not totally unreal. And Gafrida, turned out, had written earlier while a student a paper contemplating the internment of 21 million, quote, American Negroes, unquote, in the event of uh, racial unrest. So, you know, that all came to nothing, but it provided, obviously, the kind of seed that was then picked up on by people on the radical right, but also, to some extent, on the left as well. Just as a humorous note that I pulled out of this very eye-opening 
article, you quote a man named Troy Towns, who's an official with the Alabama Republican Party, and he says, and this is the quote, when I heard the word common, the first thing I thought of was communism. He's talking about common core. That's right. Uh, and that idea, that common <laughs> core, which of course is, is an effort to raise uh, educational standards nationally, has been absolutely pilloried by the entire right and not only the radical right. And, uh, you know, it has been pictured largely. This, this idea was fashioned by the John Birch Society, the organization that once accused President Eisenhower of being a secret communist agent. But the idea being that common core is a way to promote homosexuality among kids, to turn our kids into quote-unquote good global citizens. And what that all really means is, you know, global elitists, people who will be, you know, little socialists. Uh, it really is quite something. You know, what, what is, uh, to me, really remarkable about some of these conspiracies, and we've talked about it already some, but is just how much they have invaded the mainstream. And if I might just give one example, Agenda 21 was a plan drawn up at the Rio summit, the so-called Earth Summit of the United Nations in 1992, and signed by the leaders of 178 countries, including then-President George Bush, the first George Bush. What this Agenda 21 was essentially a feel-good plan. It was hardly even a plan. It was sort of an exhortation urging local communities to set up sustainability plans for their communities and so on. And um, it's non-binding, has no funding mechanism. It's not no a treaty. It's not. It, that's right. It has no legal, nothing that can be enforced. It can't make anything anyone do anything. There's no money in it. There's no treaty. There's no legal obligations. It is simply uh, a kind of feel-good document. Well, once again, in the hands of the John Birch Society, this was turned into a plot to impose socialism in the United States. Uh, it would be funny if it weren't so widely accepted. But the incredible thing, uh, the kind of punchline, uh, is that in January of 2012, before Mitt Romney was named as the presidential nominee that year, the Republican National Committee actually adopted as a resolution a something, a statement denouncing Agenda 21 as a, quote, destructive and insidious scheme, unquote, aimed at imposing, quote, a socialist communist redistribution of wealth, unquote. Now, you know, that's utterly untrue. It's not even remotely related to the facts. But again, to give you another example of how these ideas like poison enter our sort of democratic discourse, the not-so-long-ago presidential aspirant, Ted Cruz, described Agenda 21 as something that would lead to the abolishment of paved roads everywhere and, presumably worse yet, golf courses. Okay. And I, I was reading the article about Agenda 21, and, you know, they talk about enough black helicopters to block out the sun. And, I mean, it is a level of magical thinking that's up there with Harry Potter. I mean, it, it's conceived entirely out of, you know, nothing. It's, it's a remarkable thing to me. But, as you said, the John Birch Society is at the core of this, and this, particularly this one, but actually many different conspiracy theories, are they on the rise? Are they fading into the past? Are they with us forever? Are they too stupid to live? Are well, millennials they, they were, joining? They were very much exiled from the conservative movement by William Buckley in the aftermath of, of the Goldwater campaign. And Buckley, I think, you know, rightly pointed out that if conservatism were to survive as an ideology in the United States, it had to separate itself from the lunatics, meaning the John Birch Society. 
And so for quite a few years, the John Birch Society really was in the kind of political wilderness. You know, the vast majority of uh, conservatives and even very, very conservative people basically didn't treat it seriously. I saw personally the kind of comeback of the John Birch Society when I was covering the militia movement during the 1990s for USA Today. You know, it was a remarkable thing. I went to an awful lot of gun shows where that movement was so strong. And at virtually every one of those gun shows, I found a John Birch Society booth. So that's an anecdotal answer to a straight question, which is to say, yes, I think the Birch Society has definitely been growing. They seem relatively well-funded, and they've been very good at pushing out some of these ideas like Agenda 21 in just the past few years. So in a sense, they are back a bit to the surprise of many of us. Lovely. So my last question here in the broadcast portion of the show, climate change denial didn't make it onto your list of 10 conspiracy theories, but pun intended, I guess, the utter misreading of Common Core did make it onto the list. How did you determine what's a conspiracy theory and what's not? Well, I just think that, you know, we were looking particularly at conspiracy theories that by and large originated on the extreme right. We were looking at this kind of phenomenon as we tried to say in the title, from the margins to the mainstream. So, you know, certainly climate change is as bogus. I mean, you know, we could have gone on endlessly, really. And at some point you have to wonder, you know, is this really exactly a conspiracy theory? Is that the best description? You know, what pops into my mind having this conversation is the idea that, you know, we can cure gay people by subjecting them to weird therapies. You know, I'm not sure that's a conspiracy theory, but it's it's clearly wrong. And, uh, you know, it has been shown to be so. So uh, but, you know, the problem with all of these theories is that they get in our way as a nation dealing with very, very real problems. So whether or not you want to call this a conspiracy theory at the time when we were debating the Obama health care plan before it had become law in some form. I'm sure all of our listeners will remember that Sarah Palin was running around the country saying that President Obama wanted to set up death panels to decide whether, you know, your grandma or my grandpa would live or die. Of course, that was not even remotely connected to the truth. But my point here is, is that when the Palins of the world get that kind of idea into the mainstream, it makes it incredibly difficult to deal with the very real problem of health care for our people. In the same way, if we're uh, distracted by conspiracy theorists telling us that Mexico has a secret plan to invade and reconquer the American Southwest, or Mexico, the United States, and Canada are secretly planning to merge, those conspiracy theories actually helped in a very significant way to derail the very serious effort at comprehensive immigration reform that failed in 2007. And furthering that conversation, when we come back on the Extra Mad portion of Hopping Mad in our podcast, which is available at Stitcher, iTunes, and Google Play, we'll be talking about bathrooms in North Carolina. You've been listening to Hopping Mad here on Netroots Radio. Our interview today with Mark Potok of the Southern Poverty Law Center. Up next is Kegro in the Morning. We're back here on Hopping Mad with Mark Potok of the Southern Poverty Law Center. And as I said when we were signing off the broadcast version of the show, Mark, let's talk about bathrooms in North Carolina and the homosexual agenda. Well, I mean, we do talk about uh, the so-called homosexual agenda 
uh, as one of our, uh, uh, you know, conspiracy theories, the 10 we look at in this story. And, you know, the, the main thing uh, that to me is remarkable is that it's not that uh, the religious right or certain Christian right organizations are, are, you know, whining and complaining about gay rights uh, so much as that, that they, they really believe uh, on a very widespread basis that there was this very concrete Machiavellian plan that was devised years ago, uh, you know, by the LGT movement, whatever that is, uh, uh, to dupe the rest of society uh, into accepting these kind of unacceptable uh, realities. So, uh, you know, I, I, we mentioned in this uh, item, some, some of the things are really quite funny, but, you know, they identify particular books uh, as having been the, you know, the original uh, homosexual agenda uh, document and so on. Probably the most remarkable and also most amusing thing in the history uh, of the so-called gay agenda uh, came when a number of people on the religious right mistook what was a satire in a gay paper, an LGBT paper in Boston, for a real plan. Uh, this uh, wonderful kind of manifesto uh, became quite fa famous because it was so funny. Uh, one of the, the big lines in it was, you know, we shall sodomize your sons, emblems of your feeble masculinity, of your shallow <laughs> dreams and vulgar lives. Uh, and the essay ends with this line, tremble hetero swine when we appear before you without our masks. <laughs> well, you know, uh, I guess that was enough to scare the living daylights out of a lot of people on the religious right. Uh, and in fact, it was entered into the congressional record uh, as a document proving that, uh, you know, the, the killer gays were out to do all the rest of us in. However, the congressman who entered it into that record uh, elided the first sentence of this document, which specifically uh, described it as a parody. So, you know, uh, it's just really quite incredible. But uh, there are people uh, to this day, and probably quite a lot of them, uh, who believe that, you know, this is what the gay agenda is. Tremble, hetero, swine. <laughs> I just, I just, I can't get past that. I mean, I just, without laughing, I can't <laughs> get past that. So let's talk about FEMA for a minute. Uh, you spoke before about the FEMA camps that these folks think are popping up all over the country. And I was shocked in your article to learn that they actually believe that these camps include things like gas chambers and mass graves. Yeah, I mean, there, we see it uh, rather frequently. Uh, sometimes you will see some people on the, on the far right saying, uh, you know, alleging that they have discovered, as a the kind of militia leader in Georgia did pretty recently, that the federal government has secretly ordered something like a thousand guillotines, uh, presumably to chop the heads off of uh, people who are not politically correct enough, uh, you know, for the terrible federal government. Uh, you know, the, the idea of coffins, same thing, right? That the government has secretly ordered enormous numbers of coffins. You know, there are people out there who scour the news uh, for something that they can uh, twist in this way, and that's exactly what happened. In fact, there was an order uh, of temporary coffins, you know, made by some agency at some point for perfectly legitimate reasons. You know, what's kind of interesting about this FEMA thing is that it has been knocked down again and again and again. Uh, Popular Mechanics, the magazine, did a very fine knockdown uh, in which they found, among other things, 
what had been described as confirmed concentration camp built on American soil in rural Wyoming, quote unquote, uh, was actually a lifted picture uh, that had been taken uh, from a report on forced labor camps and prisons in North Korea. Right, and that's just classic. Uh, in a, a very similar thing, the Popular Mechanics also found uh, that one of the so-called secret FEMA camps turned out to be an Amtrak repair facility in Beech Grove, Indiana. We we see all of these groups with with all of these means, but let's look at the specific methods by which they're they're spreading them and organizing them. You have, I think, this the, the question that we need to answer is: Is it really? worse than it was, you know, 20, 30 years ago? Or does it just seem that way because we're seeing all of it online where we can all look at it? Well, that's, that's a perfectly reasonable question and one that's hard to answer. I mean, I say in the introduction to the piece that we wrote that, uh, you know, it's hard to avoid the feeling that there are more of these things out there, but it is uh, also difficult to prove in any kind of rigorous way. Uh, you know, I mean, obviously, enormous numbers of people uh, of Americans believe uh, that the JFK assassination was a massive conspiracy. Um, so, you know, there's a very, very widespread uh, out there, those kinds of ideas. Well, you know, there's the there's the beliefs, but then there's the the acting on them. Uh, just from a numbers perspective, are, is are, are these sorts of attacks that we've seen, like Dylan, are those increasing, or uh, is are we seeing pretty much the same amount that we have in the past? Just to see. No, I think clearly in the last year or two, we've seen an uptick in those kinds of attacks, or at least planned attacks. And you know, now it's becoming, uh, in a sense, a little uglier, right? In the in, and what I mean mm-hmm. by that is, we're not re- merely talking about fantasies about FEMA camps or about secret invasion plans, uh, but the conversation, and this I, I think is in large part thanks to Donald Trump, uh, is more and more around these white nationalist ideas. The idea that uh, the United States, uh, you know, is is becoming not the white Christian country it was supposedly founded as, and so on. So, you know, that now we're not talking about conspiracy theories anymore, but we're talking about uh, very core ideas in the white supremacist world, and those ideas are spreading. It seems perfectly clear. So, you know, Dylan Roof uh, was an expression of that, but certainly not the only one. Uh, you know, I wrote an essay at the end of the year kind of reviewing what had happened in 2015 in terms of the radical right, and there was just an enormous amount uh, of terrorism or attempted terrorism. Of course, most people don't hear about most of the plots because they're normally stopped before anybody gets hurt. But just to give uh, our listeners a briefly a sense, uh, last year, a Klansman from upstate New York, of all places, uh, was sent to prison. Uh, he and uh, his partner, a friend of his, were in the middle of building a massive X-ray weapon which with, they, with which they intended to murder hundreds or perhaps thousands of Muslims. Uh, it sounds like a plot out of a Batman comic book, but in fact, uh, one of them was an industrial engineer, and they had in fact managed to build and successfully test uh, the remote initiating device they intended to use with this X-ray weapon. How did white men get to be so afraid? White men run the world. How did they get to be so afraid? Well, I mean, I think to be fair, uh, you know, white men certainly have it better than other men in this country. So uh, let me say that right at the front. However, it is absolutely true uh, 
that if you're a working class uh, white guy today, you are in a lot worse shape than you were 30 years ago. Uh, you know, manufacturing wages have been dropping for all that time. Uh, while 30 years ago, it was certainly possible to have a, a pretty decent job. If you only had a high school diploma, that's out of the question now. So there's a lot going on. And we've all read about uh, the way uh, suicides and drug overdoses have gone up so dramatically among white people, especially white working class and lower middle class people. So, uh, again, I'm not suggesting that uh, whites have it worse off than others, uh, but they've had it better off for a long time. And now that's starting to change. Um, and, you know, at the same time, there are all kinds of other things going on in this country, uh, aside from uh, the economy. And I, what I mean are things like the advance, uh, say, of same-sex marriage, you know, a pretty huge cultural change uh, when you think back to, you know, mere 15 years ago when uh, such a thing seemed, to, you know, simply impossible. Uh, and now, you know, that is the law of the land in all 50 states. When we talk about competing with these memes and ideas, um, one of the things that people have said is, is we know that uh, people organizing online will often say outrageous things to drive traffic to their websites because it's a fundraising ploy. They get money from the ad revenue. And in addition to that, they also get people who agree with them finding their site and becoming part of their little organizations. So for those of us who are in kind of the new media, it, it, we have a conundrum of how do we talk about these things? How do we uh, sort of spread these stories and help people have the information that this is happening, this is going on, without playing into the sort of uh, attention-grabbing ploys that these guys well, are using? I think a combination of truth-telling and mockery, uh, to say it plainly. Uh, you know, one of the really infamous and just uh, one of the kinds of uh, sites you're talking about is World Net Daily, uh, a supposed quote-unquote news site, which just has absolutely, you know, outrageous uh, stories all the time, uh, none of which are based in anything re resembling reality. But, you know, we, we noticed a few years ago, uh, and don't really miss a chance to repeat it publicly, uh, that World Net Daily ran a six-part series alleging that the eating of soybeans will turn you into a homosexual, quote-unquote. <laughs> but, you know, I mean, I think that, uh, you know, uh, for anybody but the dimmest people out there, uh, that should be enough to tell you uh, what World Net Daily is worth uh, as a news source. So, I mean, what, in, for instance, let's go to gun grab and this, you know, this idea that the government's coming for all your guns. And... You know, I hear things like that, and I think, why, oh, why has the left not come back hard and exposed this as basically a marketing campaign put on by the gun manufacturers who run the NRA? Well, that's right. Why, mm -hmm. why are we so bad at messaging? It seems like on the left, we, we try to come out with facts and figures and logical things. And, and I think what you just said a moment ago about mockery really actually might be the more powerful thing to do or something like there's this new meme on Twitter, uh, you know, the hashtag is gun fail. And every time gun idiots shoot themselves in the foot or put a bullet through the wall of, you know, their apartment into somebody else's apartment or, you know, whatever stupid thing they accidentally do, it makes it into gun fail and is roundly mocked. 
Is well, I mean, look, to try and answer the question, I think in part because in the particular instance of the gun lobby, we are talking about very, very powerful and very, very moneyed interests. Uh, the NRA, uh, one of the things we point out in the gun grab piece is uh, that the NRA played a really vile role uh, during the initial uh, campaign of Barack Obama in the fall of 2008. Uh, as Obama was, as it was becoming clearer and clearer that he was quite likely to win. Uh, you know, I think everybody remembers how at that time there was uh, more or less a scandal a day coming out of the Republican Party. Uh, that is when the NRA, along with a couple of firearms producers, got together uh, to run this scary campaign called, they spent $15 million on this campaign, which they called Prepare for the Storm in 2008. Unquote. Now, you know, they didn't exactly say the black guy who's not very American, probably was born in Kenya, is coming for your guns. Uh, but that was the subtext uh, and uh, it's very powerful subtext. And, you know, the other piece of it is it's not just the NRA. I mean, this idea uh, that the government is coming for our guns has been a kind of fixture on the right for a very long time. And what was and remains a key idea uh, of the militia movement. Uh, you know, the militia movement believes basically uh, that the United States is about to impose martial law, uh, probably with the help of foreign troops, uh, likely UN blue helmets, that the very next thing will be uh, the government will seize the weapons of everyone who's not actually a police agent of the state, that anyone who resists will be thrown into FEMA concentration camps, uh, and that ultimately the United States will be forced into a so-called uh, one-world government, the New World Order. So, you know, this is a fairly elaborate conspiracy theory, but it's very widely believed uh, in the militia world. And so it provides you a kind of basis for believing all the rest of it. Uh, you know, and all the rest of it, I mean, it goes on and on. Uh, the latest uh, thing in the last few years has been the idea uh, that a small weapons treaty of the UN is really a plot to disarm uh, all Americans. And that's uh, absolutely untrue. Uh, the small arms treaty that's being considered would have absolutely nothing to do uh, with sales of weapons within a country, only between countries. So uh, it's just utterly bogus, but it plays on these fears that have been built up over a very long time and very assiduously by certain uh, right-wing elements. So I'm primarily an economics uh, wonk. That's what I cover most of the time. And when I got to the section on North, the North American Union and something that conspiracy theorists have dubbed the North American Union as part of the Security and Prosperity Partnership of 2005 signed by George W. Bush, I, I absolutely lost it over the single currency that Canada, the U.S., and Mexico are going to share, according to these folks, called the Amaru. Can you tell us a little bit about the Amaro, please? You're going to have to pronounce it correctly once we join this new country. <laughs> it's called what? The Amaro. Oh, okay. The Amaro. We're all going to have to roll our R's, you know, once the Canadians and the Mexicans move in. Because the Canadians are well known for uh, <laughs> yeah, for, the, for those rolling yeah, R's, right? That's right, exactly. Oh now, they're not going to be happy either, presumably. <laughs> I just, it just, it really cracked me up. I just, the, I mean. As big a problem as Americans have uh, over something like the Fed, can you, I mean, I just, it's, it's enormously entertaining to me. Uh, but that did bring yeah, up I, something. 
Oh, go ahead. No, I was, I was just going to say something about that because, you know, in some ways what we've been talking about for this whole time is the, the transmission of ideas from the tiny little groups in the, uh, on the fringe to the mainstream. And a related theory, not exactly the North American Union theory, but a related theory is called the Plan Datslan. And the theory is uh, that uh, Mexico has been secretly planning to invade and reconquer the American Southwest, take back the seven states of the Southwest. <laughs> Now, you know, what my point is, is that this idea grew, it was born in a tiny little group called American Patrol in Southern California. Uh, the guy who runs that group, a guy named Glenn Spencer, cobbled together a, a really crummy little video in which he found a few clips of, uh, you know, a radical Mexican professor somewhere down in South Mexico uh, saying, you know, we need to take back uh, the land that the gringos took from us and that sort of thing. In other words, he cobbled together a couple of things uh, and, and made this video uh, that uh, says that there really is a plan, right? This is what Mexico, all of Mexico is planning to do. Well, you know, uh, Glenn Spencer, it was Glenn Spencer, you know, a couple of friends and his dog who made up that group at the time, and it was insignificant. Uh, but what happened uh, was that idea leaped out uh, around 2006, 2007 uh, into the much larger Minuteman movement, these groups that were doing citizens patrols on the Mexican border and so on. So all of a sudden you had tens of thousands of people subscribing to the Otslan theory. And then about a month after that, Lou Dobbs, who then had a show on CNN every day in which he ranted about immigration, uh, Lou Dobbs presented this on CNN as fact. Uh, he put a oh picture up on the screen of the Plan Otslan as it happened in a moment that really uh, was, uh, I think, very embarrassing for him. Uh, he and his producers took that map uh, from a group uh, website. The group was the Council of Conservative Citizens. That's the group that Dylan Roof was inspired by uh, that has described black people as a retrograde species of humanity and so on. So Dobbs was, uh, you know, shown up and made to look a fool as he was then. But my, my point is that's how easily these things happen. In the course of a few years, it moves from uh, a couple of people in some remote fringe group that no one cares the least thing about uh, and makes its way uh, onto CNN uh, or some other supposedly authoritative news source. Man. So talking about money and money manipulations... I do spend an enormous amount of time on this show explaining um, something that's now called modern money because most economists and, in fact, virtually none of our national leaders actually understand what really changed about money when we stopped the gold standard and went into a fiat currency system. And, it I mean, that's just a fact. People don't understand what structurally changed and how powerful, actually, it is that we're now a fiat currency. Isn't it asking a little too much to expect non-experts to wrap their heads around why fiat currency works? In other words, until there's leadership that says, no, this is how it actually works now and why it works and why it's powerful and why it makes it safer. Yeah, I, I, I mean, I agree. I, there, there does have to be leadership like that because it's the same problem with global warming. I mean, you know, I, I couldn't tell you if the, if, uh, the Earth is warming or not, other than uh, the winters have started to seem awfully warm uh, down here in Alabama. Uh, you know, so we've got to rely on the people who really know, um, who are the scientists, the climate scientists. 
uh, in the same way, you know, I'm not, I'm not a student of human sexuality who can say that it's false uh, that gay men molest children at much higher rates than straight men. Uh, but we have the real experts, the American Psychiatric Association, the American Psychological Association, and a dozen other uh, professional associations uh, who have done the research uh, and say authoritatively and definitively that that is false. <laughs> Precisely. Um, so let's wrap up here and talk a little bit about the um, sort of the growing, well, not sort of, the growing fear of Islam and how that comes out in things like the uh, pretty hilarious, but actually not funny, Sharia law issue and then the secret Muslim training camps. And those are two separate things on your list, but I kind of see them as of a piece, essentially. Well, that's right. And they are classic conspiracy theories. I mean, the Sharia law business uh, was a theory cooked up by a particular right-wing uh, American, an ex-member of the Israeli settlers movement uh, named David Yarashalmi. Uh, he is the person who wrote the American Laws for American Courts, a model legislation. That's the model anti-Sharia legislation that's now been adopted, I believe, by eight states. Uh, and it's utter fantasy. Uh, at one point, uh, long after he published this, Yerushalmi was con uh, uh, confronted uh, with, look, you know, this is totally impossible under the American Constitution. So why are you whining about it all the time that, you know, we're going to be forced to chop off our kids' hands if they, you know, shoplift a candy from the penny store? Uh, and he said, well, uh, you see, he basically said, really, I just wanted to start a discussion. So, in other words, he doesn't even believe it. It's, it's pure fear-mongering uh, in order to get to the real uh, goal, uh, which is to uh, push Muslims out of our society. So, uh, you know, and the, the Muslim, secret Muslim training camps is related, if a bit more even unhinged than the Sharia law theory, the idea that there's somewhere between 22 and 35 hidden uh, secret Muslim training camps in this uh, country where they're, you know, training terrorists to, to murder the rest of us and so on. Again, it's been definitively shown, uh, among other things, by law enforcement uh, investigations to be false. But, you know, let's remember, it's not only, you know, some of these things are starting in very radical groups or with individuals like David Yarishalmi. But let's not forget that uh, Trump is very much a part of this. Uh, Donald Trump said not so long ago that he had personally seen thousands and thousands uh, of Muslims in Jersey City, New Jersey, celebrating on the day of 9-11. Well, you know, that's not true. Uh, that is, to say plainly, a lie. Uh, there were a whole series of investigations of the claim that was made at the time uh, that some people were seen celebrating, uh, and it was absolutely baseless. It never happened. Uh, and yet there's Donald Trump, the presumptive nominee of the Republican Party of the United States, uh, absolutely refusing to take it back. Uh, you know, he has never backed down from that claim. Uh, which anyone with two brain cells rubbed together knows is false. Well, of course, that's presuming that he has two brain cells. But, uh, I, you know, I think we're going to vote on that very, very soon, this November. Thank you so much for joining us today, Mark. This has just been um, really interesting. And everyone, I really encourage you to go out and read the article, Margins to the main, Mainstream, Radical Right Conspiracy Theories Have Invaded American Politics. It's in the winter issue of Intelligence Report, and we'll put a link to it up on our site 
imhoppingmad.com. Thank you for joining us all today. Thank you for being here, Mark. And we hope to have you back to talk about that cheerful topic, the year in hate and extremism. I'd love to do it, and thanks so much for having me.